It's Friday, November 4th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, could a musical cue played while you're asleep help prevent nightmares? Plus, a roundup of science news from this month in history. And the U.S. government might be getting an official space bureau. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. When I was a kid, any time a dream was about to take a sharp turn into a nightmare, I'd start hearing this low drum beat. Every time. Every nightmare had the soundtrack of those drums. I don't know why, and I don't really remember when it stopped. In hindsight, I've wondered if I was somehow hearing the quickened pace of my heartbeat as fear set in within my dream. I have no clue on the real scientific explainer for that one, but the idea of artificially imbuing your dreams with music to prevent them from becoming nightmares is the topic of a new study published last week in the journal Current Biology. So while we all have nightmares on occasion, if you experience them multiple times a week to the point that they're causing distress, disrupting your sleep, and therefore negatively affecting your health and functioning during waking hours as well as loss of sleep does, then you may be one of the 10 million people in the United States with what is simply called nightmare disorder. Such people were the subject of this recent study led by neuroscientists from the University of Geneva because... You know, if your study is trying to prevent bad dreams, what better participants than those who have a lot of them? Also, those folks would probably be more willing to participate in the hopes of finding an effective treatment. Now, one current method for treating nightmare disorder is called imagery rehearsal therapy, or IRT. This cognitive behavior technique has patients rewrite a positive or happy version of their nightmare and then reread or rehearse that story for a few minutes before bed each night. IRT is a proven effective method for reducing the number or severity of nightmares. But it doesn't work for everyone. A solid 20 to 30 percent of people experience next to no benefit from the treatment. So this new study aimed to supercharge IRT by adding in some TMR. Gotta love all the initialisms today. TMR is targeted memory reactivation. In this method, quoting Smithsonian Magazine, patients learn to associate a cue, like a noise or a smell, with a learning procedure. And then, when they sleep, that cue is delivered to them again, a process that appears to prompt the sleeping brain to replay the procedure and strengthen memories of it. End quote. Smithsonian points to a recent study in which students were wafted with the smell of roses while studying and then again while sleeping in order to boost their memory and success of the studying session. Which personally makes sense to me. I remember my AP US history teacher telling us that if we listened to certain music while we studied and then listened to that same music while we took the test, we would remember what we studied better. Or she would encourage us to suck on peppermints while studying, and then she literally passed out peppermints during every exam to help jog our memories. And with how important sleep is for locking those memories into your brain, I can imagine that combining the scent or music technique with sleep would be highly effective, as that study found it to be. But instead of looking at waking memory, this study from the University of Geneva wanted to see if it could be used basically within dreams to help people remember the positive version of the nightmare that they'd come up with. Quoting again from Smithsonian Magazine, 
The scientists gathered a group of 36 patients who suffered from nightmare disorder and began using IRT to help manage the condition. Half of the patients pursued standard IRT, imagining and practicing positive alternative scenarios for the nightmares. While the other 18 patients did the same, they also heard a major piano chord every 10 seconds, so they associated the sound with their positive dream revisions. And then, while this group slept at home in their own beds, they wore an EEG headband that measured brain activity to determine when they entered REM sleep, the time nightmares most typically occur. During REM sleep, the headband replayed the piano chord every 10 seconds to test the hypothesis that associating the sound with good dreams could help trigger those memories while patients slept. Patients recorded the types of dreams and emotions they experienced in daily dream reports, and they met with scientists to discuss dreams in clinical evaluations immediately after the study, and again three months later. End quote. And the results from Science Alert, quote, At the start of the study, the control group had on average 2.58 nightmares per week, and the TMR group had an average of 2.94 weekly nightmares. By the end of the study, the control group was down to 1.02 weekly nightmares, while the TMR group had dropped to just 0.19. And even more promising, the TMR group reported an increase in happy dreams, at the three-month follow-up, nightmares had risen slightly in both groups, to 1.48 and 0.33 per week, respectively. However, that is still an impressive reduction in the frequency of nightmares, the researchers said, end quote. And even though it was a very small sample, the researchers and some experts not involved in the study believe it shows real promise for efficacy among a larger sample. And in the future, this research team is looking to work with participants with PTSD. In this study, they wanted to focus solely on the technique without confounding variables, but they know that many of the people who could most benefit from the treatment are those whose past trauma negatively affects their sleep and dreams. And with how little we still know about the dream world, I'm glad that we are nonetheless able to find strategies like these to alleviate some of the struggles so many people have with sleeping. Scientific American is the longest-running, continuously published magazine in the United States, having got its start in 1845. And one thing that they regularly do in each monthly issue is cull through their archives to dig up stories that they were covering this month in history 50, 100, and 150 years ago. It's a pretty fascinating look back at what discoveries were happening or what concerns the world had all those years ago. And it's very cool that the magazine is able to do it with their own stories. So here's a sampling of some of my favorites that Mark Fischetti pulled out for the November issue. Fifty years ago, in 1972, the big news was findings from the Russian space probe Venus 8. Venus 8, or Venera 8, was the second probe to successfully land on the surface of Venus, following Venus 7 two years prior. Venus 7 was the first ever spacecraft to soft land on another planet and the first to transmit data back to Earth. Landing on Venus is still a pretty huge feat today, never mind 50 plus years ago mostly due to the extreme heat and intense pressure of Venus's atmosphere. 
Both landers were designed to withstand even higher temperatures and pressure than they were expected to encounter. Venus 8 was additionally equipped with a refrigeration system, which was used to chill the capsule prior to descent in order to prolong the time that it could survive on the surface. In the end, it was able to transmit data for 50 minutes before succumbing to the extreme conditions on the Venusian surface. And here's what Scientific American had to say about some of the findings from that data shortly after it was announced in 1972. Quote, One of the debates about Venus was whether or not its cloud cover was so thick that sunlight would not penetrate to the surface. Venus 8 carried a photometer that gave readings as the probe parachuted through the atmosphere for nearly an hour before landing. The photometer showed that sunlight is greatly attenuated by the atmosphere, but some sunlight does manage to penetrate to the surface. End quote. And keeping with the skies and heavens theme, here's an interesting sort of op-ed from the 1922 November issue of Scientific American. One journalist was making the case that airplanes should be regulated as much as cars. And it is a wild proposition to hear because planes are way more regulated nowadays. Or, you know, at least getting a pilot's license is much more difficult than getting a driver's license. And commercial planes, at least, go through many more checks before each flight than most cars are checked before a civilian hits the road. But here's what it was like in 1922. Quote, The frequency of airplane accidents has had a depressing effect upon the development of commercial aviation. It was not until the public realized that the automobile was reliable and could be controlled by any intelligent person that the motor car began to make rapid headway. What we need is a law with clauses calling for the periodical inspection of airplanes and for the rigid licensing of pilots. Today, anyone who has the money can buy an airplane, fly it, and invite people to go up. And to this situation, many of the accidents must be charged. If no one can drive a motor car without a state license, why in the name of common sense should it be possible to engage in the far more difficult practice of aviation without the slightest governmental control? End quote. And now, let's go back 150 years to November of 1872, when a Dr. R.J. Levis from Pennsylvania Hospital improved on a method for tattooing corneas. Now, I had to look this one up because I wasn't sure what exactly the reason for tattooing people's corneas would have been back in 1872, but apparently various methods for doing just that date back at least to 150 CE. Physician Galen of Rome described the procedure for masking white opacities in the eyes by cauterizing the corneal surface and applying a variety of dyes to permanently stain the cornea. It was typically a cosmetic procedure, but the white opacity or leucoma of the eye was typically a result of injury or illness. And such procedures still exist today, although there are now a myriad of techniques for it, and it can also be used to improve vision in certain cases. But here's what Dr. Levis had devised in 1872, as reported by Scientific American, quote, The instrument used is a bundle of from three to six very fine sewing needles. Ordinary water pigments are used, rubbed to a pasty consistence, and mixed with a little glycerin. For the black of the pupil, Indian ink is employed. The paint is applied thickly over the opaque spot. The needle points are made to penetrate repeatedly and rapidly in varying directions until much of the opaque surface is gone over. Two or more repetitions of the process are required. The operation is said to be painless, and as the coloring matter is tattooed into the tissues, it cannot be washed out by tears." End quote. 
India ink is still considered one of the safest dyes to use today, but I will add that it is a very risky surgery, one that is still today tough to get precise, and that the dye can fade over time, so it's not completely permanent. And as one little bonus, another takeaway from the November 1872 issue of Scientific American, at that point in time, 121 patents had already been granted on windmills in the United States. So there you have it. Recently, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission issued an order requiring all satellites licensed to access U.S. markets to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere within five years, as opposed to the existing 25-year deadline, in order to help cut down on the incredible amount of space junk in orbit. And when that order was proposed, a number of other agencies were a bit miffed that the FCC decided they were the ones to regulate such a thing. But now, the FCC says they want to create an entire Space Bureau within the agency. In a speech at the National Press Club yesterday, FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel said that the agency plans to separate the International Bureau into two parts. It'll become the Office of International Affairs and the Space Bureau. Rosenworcel noted that over the last two years, they've seen an eight-fold increase in the number of applications for fixed satellite service gateway Earth stations and received 64,000 applications for new satellites. It is an enormous amount that will only grow in the coming years as more players enter the game and existing players ramp up their numbers. SpaceX alone already has 3,000 satellites in low Earth orbit with a goal of 42,000. As Rosenworcel said, quote, The changes I'm announcing today are not about taking on new responsibilities at the FCC. They are about performing our existing statutory responsibilities better and freeing up resources to focus on our mission, end quote. And part of that mission could be reining in the lofty goals of many of these companies or mediating disputes between competitors. Vox points to lawsuits from companies that have disagreed with the FCC's decision to approve new SpaceX satellites, as well as SpaceX itself fighting back when the FCC has denied funding to them. In the U.S. and around the world, there are concerns about monopolization, public safety, national security, and more. Quoting Vox, most importantly, these satellites could be a real threat to the environment, both on Earth and in orbit. Astronomers have become increasingly worried that satellite constellations could obscure the night sky and block their view of the cosmos. And just a day before the FCC announced its new bureau, the Government Accountability Office urged the agency to review its current position on whether licensing large constellations of satellites normally does not have significant effects on the human environment. The Government Accountability Office pointed out that satellite rocket launches create harmful emissions, and that satellites themselves can contribute to Earth's ever-worsening space trash problem. Whether the creation of a new space bureau could help the FCC juggle everything from the environmental impact of new satellite constellations to regulating aspects of the growing commercial space industry remains to be seen. What's already clear, though, is that there's no sign of slowing down when it comes to launching new communication satellites into orbit. End quote. Which means, as wild as a space bureau sounds, it certainly sounds necessary for the huge amount of work the FCC is currently tasked with and how much more will be coming down the pipeline.
Well, that's going to be it for me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.